Welcome back to this week's episode of Not All at Once. On this week's episode of the podcast, Jordan and I talk about Elon Musk proposing to buy Twitter, and we recap a lot from the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami last week. Let's go. Good morning. How's your morning going so far? Uh, it's going pretty well. It's going pretty well. Can't complain. I had a really uh, intense workout session this morning. So my mm. arms are like jello. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I dig that. What time did you wake up? Not super early. Um, I, so I've been working with this, uh, been working with the personal trainer. Uh, so our session was at seven went for about 50 minutes and yeah, he's been kicking my butt. So, but it's good. I'm trying to try to repair my shoulder, my right shoulder. So it's like the main, main reason, but so yeah, morning's been off to a good start. Nice. Well, we're back after two weeks. We took last week off. Yeah. We weren't doing anything. <laughs> Nothing going on. <laughs> <laughs> by the way oh I, yeah i feel like a little sick i don't know if maybe i got sick from the conference what, what do you do you feel sick at all i'm sick of shit coins for sure after the conference <laughs> no i don't i don't think so but yeah maybe you uh we did eat a lot of uh raw fish and um so maybe that i don't know but no i, I wasn't feeling too sick all right. So for those who don't know, we're talking about BTC 2022 down in Miami. We'll, uh, we'll get to that here in a minute. Um, I want to start the, start off the episode talking about the Elon news. Um, yeah. Dropped <laughs> this morning at what, like six thirty seven this morning. Yeah. If you have not heard Elon Musk has offered to buy the rest of Twitter in a deal valuing the social media company at more than 43 billion calling the bid his best and final offer. That's right. So let's, I'm actually going to check the price of Twitter right now and see if it's pumping. Yeah, it's definitely a premium, right? I mean, uh, I think, oh, here it is. 38% premium over the day before um, his investment was publicly announced. So I think I saw Preston, Preston Pish, his, uh, his take was essentially he's kind of backed the, the uh, board of directors into a corner and um, pretty much if they don't take the offer, then they're going to piss off all the other shareholders who would get a really nice pump off of their, their investment. So, yeah, I don't know how it normally works. Like, I don't know if um, it's common for there to be a premium in buyouts like this. Um but yeah, so he, cause he's offering $54 a share, right? Yeah. Um, and the closing price yesterday, Wednesday was like $45 a share. Um, but the opening price this morning was $51 a share, but it's already actually dropped all the way down to $47 a share. Hmm. Um, 
Okay. So I guess let's start out with what are your initial thoughts? Do you think that this is a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I'm a little torn. I, cause, um, like, I think that Elon is better than a lot of the alternatives. Um, as a side note, yesterday I was listening to the latest, um, oh my gosh, what's his name? I can't, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, I was listening to a podcast about um, the Saudi Arabian regime and mm-hmm. um, they mentioned that one of like the, I don't know what they're called. They're like oligarchs, but I don't know. Okay. One of that, one of that guy, one of the oligarchs in Saudi Arabia owned a substantial stake in Twitter at one point. Anyway, hmm. uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little torn because I think that Elon is better than a lot of the alternatives. Um, and he clearly has, he's clearly in favor of freedom of speech, which I think is, um, is a good thing. Right. But I also know that Elon has a tendency to make things about himself <laughs> And I just think that, like, uh, I'm a little skeptical (laughs) of of Elon owning, like, a public good like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, essentially, he's owning the public square uh, that is the most signal, at least right now, I would say, the most smart people that kind of gather pretty much every day and talk about all kinds of things. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm pretty much with you. I think that it's, I'm torn on it as well. Uh, you know, our, our whole, the whole reason a lot of us love Bitcoin is the decentralized nature of it. So this feels very anti that feels very centralized if it were to go through and sure Elon Musk right now kind of represents a free speech, um, kind of mantra and, uh, people trust that he will, you know, will maybe bring, bring the platform swing it back to towards a free speech, maybe let some people back on uh, uh, who have been, <laughs> who have been banned. Um, you know, Donald Trump probably being the most influent or influential popular person that is not on there. So, so it'd be interesting to, to see what he would do with the company, but yeah, it definitely is a worrisome thing when all of that power is in the hands of one billionaire. Yeah. So I want to talk, actually want to talk a little bit about this because like um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this the past few weeks about so- social media and, and um, like social media should clearly be decentralized. It's clearly something that should be decentralized because it's all about freedom of speech, really. That's what decentralization is, and social media is just largely all speech. Um, and then I see tweets like Sam Bankman Fried this morning about saying, like, you know, social media should live on chain. And uh, hmm. so, like, hmm. <sighs> where to be, where to even go with this? I think that um, the most important thing here is there's two things with social media. First is freedom of speech. I think that's most important. And then the second thing social media is good for is discovery. So it's, it's good for finding new things. 
Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a wall street journal article right now, like, you know, Musk describes him as a, describes himself as a free speech absolutist. Um, but it just seems, you know, people can always be corrupted over time, you know, and I feel like it, so many people start off certain things with the purest of intentions and then things just get in the way of that over time. So, so I don't like, I just don't like the fact that pretty much everything hinges on, uh, Musk and, and his, uh, his thoughts at any given moment. And right now, you know, maybe we agree with Elon on, on the things regarding free speech, but maybe he swings the other direction in 10 years and, um, all of a sudden people are getting thrown off for saying certain things and all that. So, but I just, I want to pose this question to you. Like, what does a decentralized, what does decentralized, uh, governance of something like Twitter even look like? That's, that's what I always get hung up on is like, what is, what's the actual governance look like? Are we, are we voting like on a daily basis for stuff? I mean, is it majority rules? Is it, I just don't even understand how we've grown up in the centralized world. I don't even understand how some of these things would function uh, in a decentralized uh, way. Yeah. Okay. So I was telling this to somebody the other day, like a lot of the digital people's digital experiences uh, in, in the past decade. So basically like the, you know, the, the entirety of the, of the internet basically has, has been, highly oppressive like it's been it's almost like the world like the the internet technologies evolved at first as monarchies and so like everything was like isolated and highly controlled within the given within the given application but this is very suboptimal for like a lot of reasons um and mm. I think, I think that we're going to look, I think the next generation of like our kids are going to look back at us and be like, in the same way that like, we look back at like the Soviet union and they're going to think like, how did you people live digital lives where you had basically no ownership over anything you did? Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be quite radically different in the coming decades because, okay. So let me, I'm actually, I've been working on a piece that I'm, I'm writing um, and I, I call it the great application decoupling. Hmm. And okay. What's the definition of decoupling? Let's look that up. <laughs> this is important. Yeah. Uh, decouple is to separate, disengage, or dissociate from something else. Um, so we've grown up in a world of applications like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, um, on, you, you know, you name it. And all these applications are written in isolation as if they are the only application that ever was and will ever, ever will be. So for example, you have a dedicated YouTube login and then you have a dedicated Facebook login. Those are two different things. Mm. You have, um, you have a history of, um, activity on Facebook, and then you have a history of activity on Twitter. And those are two separate things. Right. And yeah. so like you, you don't own your activity or your history or your data on any of these platforms. It's the platforms, it's the applications that own these things. And, um, 
So in this piece, I'll, I break it down. There's basically like four major abstractions to applications. There's versus data, which is the, the content that the user creates. Wait, you cut out just a little bit right there. So oh. Repeat that. Yeah, so there's there's four major parts to to every application, right? There, there's data, which is the content the user creates. There is identity, which is who the person is. There is authentication, which is um, what the use, what the person has access to. And then there's the user interface, which is the thing that you actually interface with. That's the thing that you see and you and you click and you touch and whatever. Okay. So right now, historically, those four those four parts have been engineered, they've been developed in isolation for each application. And so each application has a full stack of technology where they own all four of those pieces. They own the data, they own your identity, they own your authorization, and they own the user interface. <clears throat> hmm. Now, um, what I propose in this great application decoupling piece is really all and what we what the common person thinks of a quote application unquote whatever they think of that is really just a user interface like that's really all it is um, and like those other three pieces are not really quote application unquote application or you know unquote yeah. um, and so. So basically the, the way it should work is like a user should have their own data. Like that is their data. And then that data is interoperable among many different applications. And so for example, like my Twitter history should, I should be able to basically log into Facebook and be like, you can have access to all of my Twitter history. And then I can see all of my Twitter history in Facebook. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting though. Like if we go down this path, I mean, these huge corporations, they're going to be very against pretty much bringing all of this onto the same, um, pretty much all into the same channel where everyone can just access everything on the internet. And we don't have these like almost brand, um, allegiances anymore with Facebook or YouTube or whoever, don't you think there'll be some pushback just generally from the large corporations that are making all their money with really high profit margins off of how it's set up right now? Very much so, very much so. And so I think a lot about how the adoption will play out. Hmm. Um, because, so what you're describing is a sticky network effect. You see these these networks have very sticky network effects that are hard to break because for example, some people literally spend years building a Twitter following. They spend years. Like that's like almost like their full-time job. Yeah. And little, I mean, they probably don't even think about this, but they don't even own those Twitter followers. Okay. Like Twitter can come in and delete your account <laughs> with no, with, without a, you know, at the blink of an eye. Yeah. Um, and so, but anyway, so, but the, but they have sticky network effects because it's not like a person who spends years building a Twitter following. It's not like they can just take those followers with them somewhere else. They can't just be like, you know what? I don't like what Twitter's doing. I'm going to go to somewhere else. They right. can't, it's just not possible. Yeah. 
It's really, it's really interesting. I mean, like, you know, I, I used to, I followed Donald Trump when he was on Twitter, mostly for the laughs and, um, <laughs> sorry if that, uh, is going to get me canceled. Um, but you know, ever since he's been off, I don't even know where to find that dude. You know what I'm saying like, Oh, he's like I radio. It, he's like radio silent. Well, I, I actually heard that he puts out like some kind of like daily something like, uh, I don't know if you call it a newsletter or something, but I've heard he does this. I have no idea how to find it. I think my grandma was telling me about it or something. And, and in my head, I'm just like, well, I'm not going to go like searching for that. I mean, if someone's not hanging out where I hang out, which for me is Twitter uh, or YouTube, I'm just not going to hear from them. Um, and that's a scary thing, especially if you're building a brand, you know, like the Babylon Bee comes to mind as well. I, I don't know if they're still um, taken off of Twitter, but you know, I wouldn't even really know. I guess I go to their website, uh, but I, I'm sure I'd have to sign up and pay some amount of money per year, per month to enjoy their content after they're taken, if they're permanently taken off Twitter. And that's just not realistic, right? You, Twitter is great because you pretty much get all of this uh, content, all different types of people, more or less for free, which I know it's not necessarily free because you're giving up all these things that you're describing, the data, the identity, the authorization. I mean, that is how Twitter is monetizing you more or less. Um, but yeah, yeah, to your point, it's like, if someone gets taken off the platform, it's like, well, I guess I'm just not going to, I'm not going to engage with them anymore because it's too much work to find them. Yeah, like basically the, the world that we live in today we, we always have an intermediary in between our communications. Hmm. Um, and the only, the only, the only thing that's, that's, that's not the, that where that's the case is emailing lists. So email is direct to person. So email is a protocol. It's called SMTP, simple mail transfer protocol. And it's been around for a long time. It's a terrible protocol, by the way, which is why just like nobody uses it. Um, but, um, but so like email is person to person, right? It's peer to peer. It's, I mean, I don't know if you call it peer to peer, but, it, but it's, it's, you're going direct to the other person as if you're sending them like a text message. Whereas with, with like things like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you're always, you're going to the platform and the platform is delivering that to the person on your behalf. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, that alone is just not, that's not, uh, that's not going to work. Um, so I do think that, I think that like one other thing I think a lot about is, this is just a side note, um, is that I think that basically too much stuff is free on the internet Hmm. and people need to pay more money. Um, like people don't realize what they're giving up by, by using free services when like you know, like, and this is what lightning fixes micropayments mm-hmm. is like, I should be able to, I should be able to like watch a YouTube video and not pay for ads and just like pay a penny. Like, like rather than you tracking my, my, my behavior and like harvesting my, my personality and like selling it to people without my permission, really like, mm-hmm. I would much rather just pay you a penny and then just give me the, the content directly. That's all I care about. Um, so I think that people, I think that that's one of the problems is that they're basically too many things are free 
Um, and that's also very difficult to, to break because getting people to go from something that's free to paid for the same experience is like extremely difficult to, to convince them to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, back to your point of like, how do you actually see this? Um, how do you actually see the network effect of, of the, the whole decoupling in my head, if someone said to me, Hey, the revenue that Twitter or YouTube makes off of you specifically now that is almost like stored up to you in a bank, like a bank type of thing that, and maybe it's a crypto wallet and you get paid. If you, if you spend, you know, 30 minutes watching YouTube videos, there's a certain amount of data that comes from that, that people can use for advertisements or whatever. And instead of that money going to Twitter or YouTube, that money actually comes into a wallet that I own. And then I can then use that to pay to watch, you know, more videos or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. To me, that seems like one solution where if you start just paying people for what they're already doing, and, and that would come from ad dollars that um, pretty much you're just redirecting the money to the user rather than the centralized uh, corporation. Now, I don't know. Like, yeah. it's it's, a, it's flipping everything completely on its head. And there's a huge downside for these large corporations that are, you know, their profits are going to massively shrink, right? So I, I don't see a huge incentive for them to do that. But if there's alternatives that are built kind of with that mindset um, coming in on the forefront, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe it works there. I think you're onto something because it's like, People, what the way the, the adopt the the way that the adoption will act, should actually play out or will play out is through innovation, and so you have to build something that's better. Mm-hmm. And so, if you build a platform where you're like, "Hey, you own your data, you own your identity, you own your authorization," um, oh, and by the way, we'll pay you to just consume content. Um, <laughs> then uh, that's that's the innovation. I mean, that's a better that's a better experience. And so people would people would use it probably. Yeah. And it's that also allows you to pay people for good behavior, which is just maybe to find good behavior is just utilizing the the application or the service in the way that's it's designed for. So you'd get paid for that. Um but you would get penalized or money would be taken from your wallet if you use it in a way that it was not designed for, uh, such as trying to scam people or, you know, trying to cause confusion, maybe over like a political um, issue or something like that. So just making it where there's, I mean, it it all comes back to like the Taleb skin in the game kind of thing, right? If people, if people have skin in the game, when they're when they're roaming around they're less likely to act out you know they're they're more likely to actually um be a good contributor to the to the overall network so that's interesting i mean i don't know what do you think do you think elon if he takes over twitter do you think his mind is is going in that direction at, at all or do you think it's just like a power play for him of like i just want to control this thing and i think it's funny yeah see this is okay i'm glad we're so we need to bring full circle this is great so that's this is my problem with elon is that i think elon actually understands everything we just said 
but I think that he, that's not what he's incentivized. He's not like, like, it's funny with Elon, he puts on this, this charade or, or this, um, this like act of like, we need to go multi-planet to preserve the, the human consciousness. I think that that's all authentic. I think that that's, he truly believes that, but like, I'm just thinking to myself, like, dude, that's, that's great and all, but like, um, you have a real opportunity right here now today with no innovation required whatsoever, just merely through policy to, to have a bigger impact than even going to Mars. Okay. Hmm. And, um, and I'm afraid that he's not, I don't think he's going to do it because I don't think that that, because if I just look at the, like Elon is somewhat of an erratic person, right? Like, like, um, and I think he even embraces that. Like, I think he would even like, I don't even think if Elon heard me saying what I'm saying, I don't even think he would be like in disagreement with anything or be upset. I think he knows who he is and that's just who he is. Right. Yeah. He has, he has constitution about it. Um, and so I think that mostly what the way Elon views like social interactions is, is very mimetic, right? He views it as, as a, a you know, he's, people call him a grifter, right? A grifter. And I think that's, I think that's true. He is, he is a bit of a grifter. Like he's basically just playing. He's, he's good at figuring out what the current thing is and then like capitalizing off of it. Right. Um, And so he'll, he will basically, he's a populist. Like he'll, he'll follow whatever, whatever the crowd, whatever the crowd wants him to do. Like if the crowd came out and was like, we think you should decentralize Twitter. um, I think that he think there's a reasonable chance that he would do it. Right. But, um, but there's just so much uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think if he restored free speech back to Twitter, I think that would be a very, very good thing because at this point, you know, being a person who follows politics very, very closely, I I don't even feel like Washington DC really has all that much power anymore. I feel like so much of the power in our society is in the hands of, private companies or, you know, public companies um, that are, that are pretty much controlling all these things that government used to have a lot more control over. Now it's all, and you know, you can't really, if you try to say, well, Twitter shouldn't ban people because of the first amendment, you know, they can easily be like, well, they're a public, they're either a company, they're not a, so they're not subject to the same rules, but it's kind of this, my understanding over the years has been, well, but we need to have this almost spirit of uh, free speech. Even if we can't force a company to embrace free speech, we should still kind of, it's a slippery slope if you start banning people for certain things. So I think swinging back to a like free speech absolutist kind of uh, mantra would be a really good thing. And then from there, you know, hopefully Elon just on Twitter, like, putting out polls like, Hey, this is what we're thinking. We're, we're going to do next. What do you guys think? And then let the community give him feedback. And I mean, I think it'd be fun, but on the, on the flip side, I do think it's dangerous. Uh, it's just a huge risk to have so much of that control centralized and, uh, and not like, have any guarantee that he's going to continue uh, being pro free speech. And yeah. So yeah, I think I agree. I mean, he's an absolute mad lad, like what he does. I, it's so funny to watch. Um, 
but I think I think the part of my concern is that like I have this vision of what social media ought to be, right? Like I'm st- I'm stuck in the what the way things should be instead of accepting the way things you know are. But and and it's like my concern is that like Elon will. So remember at the conference, and we can segue to the conference. Remember at the conference where Peter Thiel um, was talking about the three enemies of Bitcoin, and one of them was Wall Street, and he was like you know, pro blockchain is anti Bitcoin. And like, the idea here is like, you know, people, people, you know, the, the giants on Wall Street are like, oh yeah, yeah Bitcoin thing's interesting. But what, about, what about this blockchain? I'm like, oh yeah, like, you know, move along, nothing, nothing to see here. Move along, move along, nothing to see here. Like, I, I think part of my fear with Elon and social media is he's, he's kind of plays that role, right? Like he's kind of like, he's kind of like, um, He's more, since he's more concerned with his, uh, like personal, uh, uh, power that I don't know, it's not really the right way to put it, but like, he's more, he's just like more concerned about himself than, than anything else. It's like, he will, um, it's like, it's like decentralized in name only, right? Like he'll be like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this is decentralized. But then it's like, well, it's like really he's just saying like move along move along nothing to see here nothing to see here um yeah but yeah i mean anyway it's fun he's i'm it's a, it's a it's like incremental improvement i just hope that people don't like be like oh elon's a savior like no 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 yeah yeah and and then like in this this can be a good segue to to the bitcoin conference it's like i i do not trust elon on the crypto side i just i feel absolutely like absolutely not absolutely yeah. not yeah I feel like he is definitely, for whatever reason, cannot understand the uh, the use case and the value add of of Bitcoin specifically. And um, you see, it's it's all it's all a selfish play. Like, um, did you know? The, well, it's all it's all a selfish play. So, like, um, even even what he does with like hit with Tesla and SpaceX, like you can. Uh, you can think of it as if like <laughs> he's really just doing it for himself, right? Because he wants to be the 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 guy on the on the magazine cover. Um, and like the one thing, I actually think that that's all great and dandy. Whatever, like I think in order for a person to to achieve that level of greatness, they have to be like that. That's mm-hmm. great. That's great. And I think it's good for humanity because then we get things like electric cars. Um. But the one thing that I just like this, like the one exception, like, cause nothing is, is absolute. The one exception that he ought to, he ought to um, be humble. The one thing where he's like, okay, it's not about me. It's about humanity is the money. He should be humble about the money. Yeah. Um, there's a time and place to be humble and there's a time and place to, to not be humble. Right. And the, Anyway, that's my that's my shtick with uh, with Elon and crypto. <laughs> yeah, I'll be very curious to hear what uh, Dorsey what he has to say if he does end up speaking publicly about this, and just because you know he is Dorsey is so focused on Bitcoin and has even incorporated Bitcoin into Twitter uh, with tipping and things. Yeah, and, my my guess is that Dorsey is is like whispering in Elon's ear exactly what I just said, which is that hmm. um, see see like Dorsey is is a is a bit of a polar opposite in that 
he's actually obsessive over being humble, right? Like he's obsessive over not being the, the, the guy on the magazine cover. Right. And, um, and by the way, I think that that's a sickness in and of itself as well. Right. I think that both ends of the, of the spectrum are, are, are a sickness. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I would imagine that right now Dorsey is in Elon's ear saying like, listen, I know what you've done is great. And like, this is all really good stuff, but the one thing that I, I would ask that you be humble on is, is the money is Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, let's, yeah, let's transition over that way a little bit. I mean, um, the, the CPI numbers came out on Tuesday, I think we're at 8.5%. So I guess if you have, if you don't own any Bitcoin, maybe take a look into buying some Bitcoin because uh, the inflation is, it's pretty bad. I was watching, I guess, was it yesterday or it was two days ago or was it yesterday when the CPI numbers came out? I think it was Tuesday. Okay. Yeah. I was, uh, I had uh, CNBC on just because I wanted to uh, see what they were all saying. And there's a lot of talk. It felt like of this is the, this is the worst it's going to get now it's down from here kind of thing. Um and it seemed like the market kind of that's what the market was telling us since since uh, stocks and indexes it looked like they kind of pumped on Tuesday, which was interesting. Um, so real quick, I mean, is this a, a, a prediction from Kindle? Is this the do you think this is the top? <laughs> Get out the crystal ball. The crystal ball. Um, yeah, I mean, this, who, who knows? The answer is I don't know. But yeah. um. You know, I actually thought that last month's CPI was the peak. I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was pretty firmly of the opinion that last month's CPI was at the, was the peak. Um, but then this month's comes out and um, it's up, you know, 0.6%, which is quite a lot. So, yeah. so then that makes me think, okay, well, what did I, what did I get wrong, you know, last month? And I think what I didn't see last month was what's going on in Shanghai in China. Hmm. All of Shanghai is locked down, um, yeah. which is a whole different subject. And then couple that with with um, Russia and the commodities. I think that I think I don't know, man. I think this is the peak. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. Like but see the thing the thing that's tricky about the CPI is it's mostly a publicized thing like or a, like a political thing so it's mostly right. like it's mostly like that's the number that they want you to know now yeah. it's, it's not the real number um and so like the the question in figuring out what's the future CPI number is a question of what do i think the geopolitics looks like in a month and it's hard, it's hard to believe that between Shanghai and Russia, geopolitics gets worse. Like, um, I think that that's, I think, I think that's probably the peak. Now, I think that probably what happens is we start to come down and later this year, we may even get into like the fives, right? Five or six, but I don't think that we'll get any, anywhere further than that. I think that that'll be the lows. And yeah. I, think, I think that we might even go shoot back up, right? I think that we're in for a sustained period of over 5% inflation for at least um, 
at least the next two or three years. And it's like, and it, and it may be that like it briefly um, drops below five or so percent. Um, but the point is that I think that, um, I think that it's going to be a sustained number for a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I heard as well. It's that it might come down like this might be the peak, but it's not going to be coming down too much. It's still going to stay relatively high. Um, man, just looking over the, the, uh, BLS, uh, figures just like overall, like food away from home, 10%. And you get some of these energy things like at 32%, 48%. I mean, it's so crazy. You know, we were sitting, I I can't remember if his uh, dinner, if you were at this dinner down in Miami. Yeah. I think you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You were. Remember Camden was like, telling us how much he paid on his LG and e, his electric bill, gas and electric bill. I mean, Oh yeah. It, it was like crazy. a rent payment. It was like, literally yeah. that's like a rent it's, payment. Yeah. So yeah. And it just blows my mind because knowing people's personal financial situation, you know, a little, maybe a little bit better than most, just given my job, there's not a lot of wiggle room for, for the vast majority of people. So I, yeah, I just don't, I just don't, uh, it's not going to be looking good uh, if people have to continually try to try to keep up with this. And then the wage, the wage gains just did not come even close to what they needed to. So pretty much everyone took a pay cut, um, generally speaking. And yeah, even if we come down from here, I just don't see I just don't see it working out well because if interest rates continue to rise, businesses are going to have to pretty much shrink um, because you know access to capital is not going to be as as easy and free flowing as it has been for what the past couple decades, I guess at this point. Or so all that to say, it looks like it's a rough road ahead, um, generally speaking. So, um, but all that to say, let, let's uh, let's jump into the conference. So. Mm. Um, Miami Miami yeah first time in Miami for me I think you'd been down there before um ended it with a yacht trip uh so we had lost all of our bitcoin um in a boating accident but we're uh we're trying to stack it back up so um and if if my bitcoin suddenly move somebody must have like found them I don't I don't know right yes so, <laughs> okay, let's start off with, um, maybe let's start off with that billionaire capital allocators talk. Um, you found that one interesting in terms of like what, where some of these really large uh, allocators, how they're kind of thinking about things long-term with bonds and everything. You want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah. First off, Greg Foss moderated that one. He was an absolute fireball. Like, yeah, he came out. Couldn't sit down. (laughs) Oh, man. He couldn't even. Yeah, he he had to keep standing up. Oh, my gosh. He called like Trudeau a buffoon. Uh, Oh, man, he was great. Um, And for those who don't know, he's a Canada guy. So that makes it all the better. He's a Canadian. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think that the like um, broadly across the conference, there's a it was a there's a lot of political um, energy, I'll say, 
And I think that the, the billionaire capital allocators was um, a good way to kick that off because um, on the stage, there was four capital allocators that um, run funds worth tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. And um, yeah, I mean, they're basically all saying that Bitcoin is the thing. It's a thing that everybody here thinks that it is. And we all see that. And so what, what I see whenever I see the, the billionaires up there talking about that is a political admission. It's an admission that the elites, that the 1%, the billionaires of the world are not only do they know that Bitcoin is a thing, but now they're able to outright say it. You hmm. see, it's become politically acceptable. Um, and so I think that that's extremely powerful. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest walking away from that and just understanding the, just the, the amount of money that these, there are four guys up on stage, the amount of money collectively that they are allocating was just mind boggling. Um, and I know it's not just them, but you know, that they have a, a considerable say in how it's allocated. And then when they were getting into the bonds uh, where, you know, all of this money, pension money that has to be paid out over the next 30, 40 years for people uh, in the boomer generation and how that is in a negative, it's a real negative yield because bonds are paying out at a lower percentage than, than inflation and how that is, they were just essentially saying it's not sustainable but we can't just like quickly move into other things. Uh, we have to do it slowly. And I think we were chatting about that on a car ride to dinner one night where. Yeah. See the, the thing is, is that you it's the, the conversations that the Bitcoiners have are, are really quite dangerous actually, because, um, a majority of the world's wealth is held up in, in the bond market in, in pension, pension funds, things like this. And so like our parents' retirement accounts, we're basically what we're saying is those are all worthless. Hmm. And, um, and even demographically, like there's more of them than there are of us. Right. And so, um, so it's, it's quite, it's actually quite dangerous to, to slip into a world of hyperinflation. And it would be equivalent to like World War II, right? And so um, the guy even made, one of the guys even made mention of this on the panel. He was like, listen, it's, it's, it's quite scary, but I promise you that people in these, in these roles are highly intelligent and um, they're not going to, like, they're not going to blow the system up for selfish reasons. Um, and what I hear from that, whenever I hear those words come out is what I hear is we're moving as quickly as we can, but no quicker. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, when you're talking about that much money, I mean, the whole bond, the whole bond market, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's at least a hundred trillion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and that's, uh, that's 20% of the overall global estimated kind of uh, value or wealth of about 500 trillion so 
it's a huge amount of money globally that you just you can't play around with. Um, you know, what's funny with probably a lot of Bitcoiners are sitting back and saying, like, the system deserves to be torn down, you know, and we don't trust the people who are, quote unquote, like intelligent, who are managing all this money. I, I feel like there might have been a sentiment of that, but it's a very, yeah, it's a very uh, proceed with caution kind of kind of scenario because you're not you're not just it's not a joke you're dealing with huge amounts of uh people really and they're saved up wealth that they're depending on for the next 30 years probably you know if they're coming to retirement age in their 60s and they're planning to live it well into their 80s or 90s i mean yeah this money has to it has to uh hold its value over time the problem is it's not going to and so, yeah. So anyways, yes. that was interesting. That was very interesting. Yeah. All right. What else do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about the Peter Thiel? Yeah, that sounds. Okay. So yeah, I that thought, sounds like a good one. I thought that the Peter Thiel one was the biggest bombshell. Um, so, oh man. if, if Why? People... He didn't even say anything that controversial. <laughs> if people are listening to this podcast and you haven't watched the Peter Thiel talk from the conference... I highly recommend you go watch it. Um, there was a couple of things that it that that stood out. First off, um, he he made note that in the late seventies, the the market cap of gold was roughly like two trillion dollars, um, and he said the market cap of equities was also roughly two trillion dollars, and so you had this parity between gold and equities. They were roughly the equivalent in market cap. Um, and then fast forward to today and equities are worth north of a hundred trillion and gold is only worth 12 trillion. And so his framing is that you shouldn't really think about Bitcoin as digital gold. And I, I've been saying this for a while. Like, I think that people are a little overly fixated on this digital gold concept, but, um, he's like, you shouldn't really think about Bitcoin as digital gold. You should think about it as in competition with equities because equities and gold used to be at parity. And the only reason why gold is no longer at parity is because of the custodial, custodial problems. Um, he, he didn't talk about this. This is, this is my take. Um, like the problem with gold is that it's expensive to secure and, and possess ownership over. Um, and you can't really, most of the gold in the world is actually paper gold and it's just like claims on gold. And so they're all inflated anyway. Um, whereas with Bitcoin, you can take full self-custody. I think that's the, I think that's the piece that um, traditional finance people write off. And it's like one of those pieces where they're like, they're either just overly naive and they're just like, oh no, it's magic internet money. And so then they just like, don't even listen to that piece. Or they listen to it and they're like, oh, sh oh shoot. Uh, they're like, move along. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Don't, 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 don't recognize that you can take self-custody of this thing. Mm. Um, so that was one thing was the, the equities comparison. So if, if Bitcoin were to reach parity with equities, 100 trillion, which most people thought it would reach equity or reach 100 trillion just through um, capitalizing market share from the bond market. But T Peter Thiel's like, well, no, no, no. Actually, you should think about it capturing value from the equities market as well. Anyway, that would be like a probably like 150, 200x from here if you account for 
various things. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that, I, that he talked about that I loved was he was like, I think it'd be useful to acquire a list of enemies to Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever he said that, I was like, oh, I was like, oh yes, here we go. I'm going to love this. And <laughs> the first picture I think was uh, Warren Buffett with the snake oil. Or oh, was it snake oil or something? Uh, rat poison? Rat poison. Rat poison. Oh, yeah, and the, and the crowd booed Buffett. I love that. They're all like, Boo. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, it's so funny. Um, okay, so the three enemies were um, Buffett, um, which is he's really just like he's putting a face to it, but really it's just like the older generation that is just dismissive of this thing and um yeah that's really what he's describing the second enemy was wall street and so he, he put jamie diamond's face up there yep. jamie diamond is the ceo of jp morgan chase um and uh he said like again this is just like broadly the wall street giants is you know like basically a lot of financiers make their money through complexities. And so they're like, oh, you don't understand investing. And so you just need to pay me 2%. I'll, I'll, I'll do it for you. Don't, you know, you, don't, don't kill yourself or you'll lose all your money. Just let me handle it. And it's like, well, if the, if the equation just becomes simple, like just buy Bitcoin, then like all of those people go unemployed, um, yeah. which I thought was super powerful. And then the third enemy, he said, the, he put the face of Larry Fink up there, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock. And um, what he was really saying is representational of ESG, the ESG movement. And um, he had a quote, which is like, when you think ESG, you should think CCP. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. The Peter Thiel, absolute bombshell. I loved it. Yeah, it was great. I mean, he he held nothing back. I mean, he he has fu money at this point, so he can essentially say whatever he wants. But the the fact that it came from him, we talked a little bit about this, is, is huge because he's very well respected. He's not just some like some outlier, um, you know, tinfoil hat type of person on YouTube or Reddit or something like. This is a legit <laughs> investor coming out and. And uh, yeah, saying a lot of things that, um, yeah, takes, I mean, it would take a lot of bravery for someone who's like uh, up and coming, you know, might, people might paint you as like a crazy person, but yeah, coming from him, that was, that was awesome. So yeah, yeah, I think you hit all the points I was going to, uh, that I was going to bring up with that. So, I mean, it goes back to the, uh, to the article, the Arthur Hayes article where, yeah, people and people in finance, they, they try to paint themselves as like, they're going into this back room and, uh, your investments are extremely, uh, extremely difficult to comprehend. You would never be able to do it yourself. If you tried, I love that. Yeah. And, and Peter Thiel is pretty much like, no, if you buy Bitcoin, your money is going to hold value over time. And that's really, that's really all you want. Right. I mean, the reason that we have to shoot for these higher gains in the equity markets is to keep up with inflation. And so if Bitcoin is keeping up with inflation, then it's there's no issue. And it's, you know, based on 
based on the last 13 years, it'll outperform inflation. So, yeah. Um, one more thing too. Um, Balaji Srinivasan has talked about this some, but, um, you know, it's like people look at gold today, gold today. And they're like, wow, gold is just like really boring, dumb and lame. But he, he's like, no, no, no. You have to remember that, you know, back in the day, gold was the whole thing. It was everything. Like everything was basically a measurement of gold. Right. And so, um, it's like, you know, you know, prior to even capital markets, like <clears throat> I'm talking centuries ago, right. Mm-hmm. Like gold used to be the thing. Um, and I think that, I think that Bitcoin has the opportunity to be a similar, to, to have a similar role in civilization in that it, it is the, it is the thing, right. It's the thing that every common person is just like, I don't care about stocks. I don't care about bonds. I don't care about what's going on in the markets. I don't even really care about inflation. I just am saving Bitcoin. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's, e- that's simple, easy. Everybody can understand it. And uh, I think it's powerful. Yeah. Okay. One other thing with, with Teal that we've got to talk about uh, was the graphic he put up where it was the, uh, oh, let me think. It was the one with Ethereum at the top left and Bitcoin at the bottom right. Um, it was like high value, low volume. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Velocity. Volume, velocity. Oh, velocity. Yeah. So velocity. Yeah, you can think about it as pretty much like a x y axis. On the y axis is velocity. On the x axis is value, and it's essentially like a curve. That um, what kind of curve is that? It's an exponential curve. Basically, it's saying that the going down though. Yeah. Yeah, going down. Yeah. Basically, he's the the claim is that the higher velocity money is of lower value, whereas the lower velocity money is of higher value. Yeah, which you know, and he, he had Ethereum being the the high velocity, low value, Bitcoin being the opposite of that. Um, but yeah, it turned into a debate even amongst our group of, you know, well, well, does Lightning fill that role? And then and uh, and you know, some people on Twitter were posting Lightning is actually the the high velocity, but then, you know, I think you pointed it out, Kindle. Well, does that make lightning? Does that make it low value? So I think that that was one of the main unresolved debates that I that I felt like I walked out of the the conference with. Generally, is where does lightning fit into all of this? Um, yeah. So because because what the claim the claim is that lightning increases velocity because you can start moving it you can start moving bitcoin around for cheaper and in doing so does it decrease the the value of bitcoin because to to teal's point the higher the velocity of the money the lower the value and you can think of this actually in, in fiat terms the whole point of fiat being inflationary is that people it it incentivizes people to spend it right because there's no point in holding on to it because tomorrow will be worth less than it is today. So I might as well spend it by spending it. You're increasing the velocity, high velocity, low value. Right. Um, so, so yeah, then it's like, well, where does lightning fit, fit into this? I don't know. Honestly, I, I'm a little torn too, because it's like, part of me thinks that the whole concept of bitcoin as a store of value plus lightning is like very futuristic 
it's like so i think okay i'm gonna try to just stream of consciousness i want to try to think something out like the way that we think of currencies in today's world is like a currency is an actual asset and so like we trade currencies and we trade like in a, you know being long equities means that you're short fiat or being long fiat means that you're short equities or or vice versa and so like you know in a way the the money in the world today is an asset right it's an asset whereas like <clears throat> there's a whole different perspective, which is that money is like a measurement. It's like a store. It's like a, it's a unit of account. And so this is kind of what I was saying with the biology thing and that gold used to be everything. And like the way you can think about it is like, rather than gold being a dedicated asset class versus silver or versus stocks or whatever, it's like, no, gold is actually the entire wealth and everything else is a is um is like a fraction of that total gold reserves right um and you hear this in bitcoin it's like infinity divided by 21 million mm-hmm. um so i think there's two views to, to to view money through two perspectives to view money through one is like is it an asset class that's tradable against on the, on the market against other asset classes or is it a a universal um, unit of account measurement system. So um, I think that like pragmatically, okay, let me start with the idealistic view first. I think idealistically, the idealistic view is this infinity divided by 21 million. Like, I think that that's a little idealistic in that um, it's like Bitcoin becomes the only money and it's like the only thing and if it's the only thing, then it's sort of like a measurement of everything, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that's a little, I think that's the idealistic view, but I also think that that's possible. And I think that it's possible, but it would take, it may take like a long time to get there. Um, and then this, I think pragmatically, like more realistically, the correct way to view money is on an asset class basis. And so like you're, you're, that's why I think Teal's assessment of comparing it against Ethereum is actually more apt in that um, you're, you're, you're measuring the asset one against another, right? And um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, I don't know. I don't know where I land. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I mean, I'll, I'll say this too. One more thing too. I think that, I think that lightning is a great thing for the world. And I'm very bullish on it and it can't grow fast enough in my opinion. Um, whether or not it decreases the value of Bitcoin, I think is irrelevant. Um, and I've been thinking about this too, again, maybe stream of consciousness here. We'll see where this one lands. <laughs> uh, I think that, um, you see there's, you know, are you familiar with the Pareto principle? The, the, the Pareto principle is like 80-20, right? So 80% mm-hmm. of one thing accounts for 20% of another thing. Um, and like this happens all over the place. Like for example, in, in workplaces, typically 20% of the employees make up 80% of the productivity. And then the other 80% of the employees make up only the 20% of the, of the productivity. Yeah. Um, I think that this is true in Bitcoin as well with this whole 
dilemma between store of value versus medium of exchange, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the 80% is a store of value. And then I think that the 20% is the medium of, medium hmm. of exchange. I like and, I th- and, and the way you can think about this is <clears throat> that the, the 80% of the holders <clears throat> of the hodlers are basically paying a service. Like they are supporting a cause for the marginalized 20% to be able to use censorship resistant money. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like you, you want the store of value to be larger because it's, um, it enforces that that 20% are free to, to send money over like over the lightning network for zero costs and can't be censored. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I think that that leads in well to, uh, the next one that we can talk about, which was the panel, um, find it. So I don't butcher it. It was the freedom one. Bitcoin is freedom. And that was kind of, I'm missing it, but you know what I'm talking about, right? The, yeah. Alex Gladstein, Bitcoin is freedom. Yes. So yeah, that one was really interesting to me um, specifically because I'd never heard of these different use cases for countries that don't enjoy the same uh, freedoms that we just take. I mean, I just take for granted uh, just the fact that you can even open up a bank account, the fact that you can essentially send money to anywhere in the mostly anyone in the world or anyone that you would want to send money to most of the time, you can get that transferred over pretty easily. And uh, so, yeah, just set it up. There were three people on the panel with uh, Gladstein. Um, there was a guy from, uh, yeah, from Middle East who was like Palestinian, who was discussing how it was helpful for sending money uh, into that area of the world. Um, there was a lady from Ghana, where she was uh, talking about actually, and I didn't know this, uh, how there there's like 13 countries in Africa where their their currency is completely controlled by France. Did not know that. So that so pretty much, and then France pretty much gets to buy their exports at a at a discount before they can sell it to other people. So, anyways, that was uh, that was the second, and then the last. Uh, lady was from North Korea. She's, I think she's been on Joe Rogan before. So she's got popular already, but she was kind of talking about how really she didn't get into Bitcoin too much, but she was mostly talking about how um, the North Korean government just essentially like changed the currency overnight, stole, you know, decades of wealth from, from people stored wealth and uh, yeah, pretty much forced everyone into poverty and how Bitcoin would uh, shield that from ever happening. So, yeah, I, I think that comes, it, the reason I think it ties in well with the conversation we were just having is like, yeah, us as Americans, we see this as, as a way to pretty much save or invest our stored wealth. For people around the world, Bitcoin is a means of survival. It is a way for them to you know, continue purchasing the goods and services they need to survive potentially in like really terrible circumstances, but just in general, it protects them from oppressive regimes that um, either want to censor transactions or just want to come right out and steal wealth from, from people. So 
that one was really moving. I've been sending that one, that panel around to uh, lots of family and friends this, this week, just saying, hey, if you don't, if you don't watch anything from the Bitcoin 2022 conference, I would, would suggest watching this because this is a use case that I think most of the time we're very, uh, we're in this like bubble wrap as Americans with our monetary um, thing. And we think we've got it bad. Well, we, we don't at all, which is why we don't see the value in Bitcoin, I think. Oh yeah. Gladstein is a, is a beast. He's got a book, check your financial privilege. I recommend people, people read that if, uh, if you're curious. Yeah. I mean, to your point, it's just, um, people in the West are, are very privileged relative to, to the rest of the world. And, um, yeah, it's uh, Bitcoin is for everybody. And, uh, it, it cannot be stopped by, by oppressive regimes. Um, for example, even just yesterday, I saw a video of the CNBC reporter sending Bitcoin over lightning to, to some people in Ukraine. And, uh, and then that person went to an ATM and with, withdrew fiat. And so basically the person was able to, to get fiat currency sent to them, you know, buy a westerner over over bitcoin so um yeah it's beautiful i mean it's really powerful when you think about it um with with just being able to get to get value into the hands of people who really need it um and we you know we spent a lot of a good chunk of time with um with a guy uh i guess i won't i won't uh dox him on on here but guy I met on Twitter. Uh, we might have him on the show here at some point. I'll, I'll give permission on if, whether he wants to be docs or not. Um, you know, even from, from him, for, from his perspective, he's originally from Jordan and, uh, yeah, just hearing some of the stories on how, how it's difficult to get things, uh, into that part of the world, whether it's by the U S government, like is the U the U S government might question you to see, are you potentially funding terrorism? Um, but then say it does get into Palestine, like then you've got to get it through the Palestinian authority. And it's just got to hit all these pretty much centralized nodes before it finally hit your account where you can use it. And yeah, I just don't think I'd seen uh, or been exposed to that part about, about Bitcoin um, and that use case. So it goes back to freedom of speech, right? It's like, mm. you can think of the freedom to transact as the same as the freedom of speech. And, um, you know, us Americans, for sure, we believe that's a, that's a fundamental unalienable right for every human being on the planet. Mm. And the reality is most people in the world actually don't have that right. And, um, and Bitcoin fixes us. Yeah. Yeah, and then this will actually be a really nice segue into um, into one more topic, and we'll we'll see if we uh, want to cut it off after that. But pe- people who come at Bitcoin about the energy usage and all those things, right? They most of the time will say, "Why are we using this energy, renewable or not, on this thing that has no purpose, no value?" And I I just to anyone who who subscribes to that uh, narrative, I would just say, go watch that panel. And you'll understand that the energy that we use um, in the proof of work protocol to get new Bitcoin mined, there is a there's a huge value for people all across the world 
who did not have access to this, um, you know, 13 years ago. And so um, I would say that that's a huge starting point because yes, if you, if you don't see any value with Bitcoin, then yes, the energy usage uh, you might argue is a waste, but once you start seeing it in action, um, yeah, I think that, that changes, that at least changes the conversation because now it's just a matter of, well, do, do the benefits outweigh the cost? Um, right. And it doesn't, yeah. take, it doesn't take long for people to be like, oh yeah, definitely. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we can kind of get into that if you want to. I know uh, I, like the tweet that Ken sent out at the end of the week was Bitcoin is a political movement. There's a lot of, there was a lot of uh, political back and forth. There were some politicians who even showed up. Sadly, uh, uh, El Salvador president, he had to back out at the last second. So we didn't, did not get to hear from him, but um, you know, a lot of it was centered around the energy usage question and different, uh, you know, different opinions on that. And there's one panel specifically, I think we, it might be good to talk about is the one with um, Marty Bent and Troy Cross. And then the <laughs> other two people were CEOs of publicly traded Bitcoin mining uh, companies. And it got pretty, uh, pretty heated in there. Um, and even from the crowd, I mean, we were sitting right next to a guy from, uh, I think, Germany, right? And mm -hmm. he, at one point, he yelled out uh, to one of the CEOs when they were finished up talking, he, he yelled out, that's a fiat mindset in his German accent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it got, it got pretty heated. But, you know, I think, I think we walked away from that talking about it a little bit, saying, you know, in, in some ways, it's a shame that it was that, um, that it was that heated politicized but, yeah. yeah and politicized yes but in the, on the other hand it kind of speaks to just the nature of bitcoin in general and the nature of a decentralized network that is trying to <clears throat> figure things out right and so i mean i equated it even back to just generally the uh the american democracy where you know i i actually kind of like the fact that we are at odds I mean, I wish it was not so, so much at odds, but I do enjoy the fact that there's not one party that just has all the power all the time and that it swings back and forth a little bit. Right. And in the same way, I think Bitcoin, there is, you know, there's at some points there's competing uh, narratives, there's competing interests and yeah, sometimes you have to fight it out and it's not always pretty. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. Here's the thing, like, this is the big stage, okay? The big stage is politics. And I know people hate that. So many people hate that. Some of us like, like it. Uh, but um, people are like, oh, it's going to be politicized, blah, blah, blah. Um, look, if you want Bitcoin to do the things that you, that you think it can do, if you want it to really change, like fix the world, then um, this is just one more one more boss to battle, and uh, so yeah, I think that I think that my reading on the conference generally is that uh, this is officially a political movement. I was asking you, I was like, do you th what are the odds that there would be an orange party? And uh, yeah, so what are your what are your opinions on the orange party, Jordan? Uh, I would say. I would say it's probably a waste of time, just given how much power is held um, within 
within the uh you know the republican and democratic like those two just like mega parties i feel like at this point i mean the libertarian party if i had to throw one out as like being quote unquote the most successful is still a complete failure every single time and so i would say the work that you know people like jerry brito are doing uh with coin center initiatives like that and more grassroots types of initiatives are probably a much better way to go from a political um stance and you know i don't want anybody to to think oh if you're into bitcoin that means you have to be into politics absolutely not like no definitely not definitely you just there are just going to be certain battles that that happen over the course of the next you know five to ten years and um it doesn't mean that you have to get involved but you know sometimes people over certain issues get involved in politics for a time and it it just there's a whole wide range of issues why that why they might do that and i think bitcoin will end up being uh, a driver for some people to say i would have never pictured myself being in going into politics but i have to to at least be a voice for this new technology and help people understand because that's really what we're up against is like just misunderstanding yes yes and so um and communicating that in a way that is not where you know and not in a spirit of you're such an idiot you don't get this but in Mm -hmm. a spirit of you know, approaching everything, listening first and trying to understand another person's point of view and then trying to sprinkle in some truth about Bitcoin and how it actually works and the different uh, the different things that it is just doing to improve human life all across the globe. I think that's the main, we just have to get away from this. Uh, we have to get away from this spirit of I'm right, you're wrong and you know, sit down, shut up, that kind of thing. We have to, and I think that's, you know, we talked a little bit about it. That's like one of your main um, hangups with specifically, I think Marty Ben, even if he says some stuff that's like, we could all probably get behind, it's how he said it. And um, I think that's going to be very important going into, going yeah, into be, the next five, 10 years. Being dismissive is just, is just totally wrong in my opinion. It's just the wrong strategy. You're not going to win by being dismissive. In fact, I can, I can even use an example, um, a non, a non like, quote, quote, non-political example. The, the Bitcoiners dismission of altcoins, I think, is an actual negative, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And, um, and here's the reason why. It's because... Um, you see, I actually welcome Teal's comparison, Bitcoin versus Ethereum, because, um, you see being dismissive in that, in that regards means that you're closed minded and, Mm. and you, and you are therefore not competitive. Okay. This is the most important thing. You are no longer competitive if you are dismissive, um, in order to be competitive, you have to understand your enemy. Okay, you have to you have to really understand the argument and win the argument. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I think that's a yeah, being dismissive is, is the wrong strategy. And then, yeah, regarding the the political stuff, it's like political parties. Yeah, totally, Orange Party, wrong wrong idea in my opinion. And here's here's why. Uh, 
Bitcoin is, is fundamentally an American idea. And it's, it's, it's something that every American can get behind. It's uh, again, I think that the right to transact is the same as the right to the right to speech, mm-hmm. uh, the right to freedom of speech. And um, there's a, there's a reason why the very first right in the bill of rights, um, meaning the most important one is freedom of speech. Um, because I think that that is, that's the most important thing. And that's an American idea and not something that, um, I, I would hope that everybody, every American can, can get behind. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think is once they begin to understand it more, uh, and, you know, hopefully through shows like this with just, uh, hearing it in terms that are, that make sense to them. Uh, I think that'll help. I mean, I just pulled up the, the definition of, of politics. So We've got the activities associated with the governance of a country or other area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. And, um, or you could even say like hoping to achieve objectives. And, you know, there was another talk that we went to, I'm going to forget the guy's name, but a BIP 300 guy, um, you know, there's even things like that where that is, and just so people are for people who do not know, I did not know. Uh, you know, there's some proposed changes to certain uh, things, how Bitcoin works. And so ultimately those discussions are political in nature. And um, that's so- what's funny, right? That's so because Jordan and I were, were sitting at the open source stage, which um, which is where, you know, like the developers basically go. And um, we were listening to a talk between um, some some Bitcoin developers discussing the differences between hard forks and soft forks. And uh, I'm sure most of it was just going in one ear and out the other for, for Jordan. Um, <laughs> but, but I, but I turned to him and I said, Jordan, I don't know if you realize this, but even this discussion right here, this is a political discussion. It's just a political discussion about development, uh, uh, te- you know, technical things. Um, so, so yeah, it's just to, to Jordan's point, it's just so important to, to be open and listening um, and don't be dismissive. It's, it's one thing to, to understand your opponent and, um, to, to have a better argument than, than, than just to, just to be outright dismissive. I think that's counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been interesting. Like, uh, yeah, and listening to both sides. I mean, that's always helped me with politics as well, uh, just to make sure I'm not going down too far into one uh, side and then getting to a point where I can't even have a conversation um, with a person who thinks differently. I think it's going to, we, there's a potential that we end up in that's in a similar place um, with Bitcoin. And I don't understand what the nature of this is, but it's like everyone has to pick a side. And then there's no moving. It's almost like people have lost the ability to admit yeah. uh, See, that they're I think, wrong. Which I, is think that, I think that we've already even experienced that in Bitcoin, specifically with altcoins. And so I think that, I think that this, um, and this is what Paul, Paul Sork, which is the BIP300 guy, he, he talks about this a lot and I agree with him. Um, there's this like, it's almost like a disease, like a... Uh, like an idea disease among the Bitcoin community to just be dismissive of altcoins as if there is no utility 
in any of them. And, um, and by, by being closed minded like that, like by not listening to, to, to the opponent, I think that uh, Bitcoin has actually suffered. I think that, I think that if you look at Solana and Avalanche, there's your, there's a proof in your, you know, proof in the pudding uh, and the market caps speak for themselves. So yeah. Uh, yeah. anyway, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and just to take the contrarian view uh, real quick, you know, in terms of like the Marty Benz, you know, he reminds me a lot of like a, a Trump type of character. Right. And uh, just someone who kind of says, says whatever comes to his mind and doesn't really take into account anyone, anyone's uh, feelings or, you know, and he's just like a, he's a fighter kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for certain things that is appropriate, um, especially if, you know, that we really start to experience some, um, some forces uh, that are trying to keep the system how it is, and maybe they're utilizing certain popular things like climate change uh, right now to, to achieve those like status quo kind of objectives. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting to have people out there who are like, man, I wouldn't have said it like that, but I mean, I guess somebody, somebody had to say that. Um, and I think, you know, I think hopefully there's not too many times where those, uh, those things have to be experienced where people get their feelings hurt and it ends up like maybe pushing people away from Bitcoin. But, um, this is it's a this fight. Is... It's a huge fight. Like at Definitely. the end of the day, this is all about power and we're going up against, you know, a, probably a century, uh, of people who have a certain status quo with, um, with soft money and all of the benefits that have come along with that and the lifestyle that, you know, so many people at the top enjoy because of that system. And we're pretty much coming in and we're saying that's, that's done. We have, we have a solution now that like your, your position in the world is going to be greatly diminished. And so your lifestyle, like your house on the water in Port Royal below Naples yeah, you might have to sell that because yeah. now you're not going to be able to get it paid what you used to. I mean, just take someone like a financial advisor, even take someone who does taxes. There are there are things that technology is going to do for us into the future. And the whole idea of work, the whole idea of pay, it's going to look a lot different. And that's just, that's going to disrupt a lot of really powerful, wealthy people. And I, I imagine that they're going to put up a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. All right. Do we, uh, can we end it there? I think that was a great place. to. Yeah. Yeah. We'll end it there. All right. Until next time. See y'all.